Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you. I want to talk to you about something that I addressed uh, months ago. We talked about five days of encounter. I, I'm not preaching this because I've run out of things to preach. I'm, I'm not trying to just have a filler. Um, oh, well, thank you. I'm not trying to just have a filler before we go into the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. I believe that it's important for us to review these principles because I still believe they are on the agenda um, for the future. Um, we did it last year because I believe we were given a preview and God was telling us that we could get prepared, that we need to be ready to move out. And um, he was telling us that there are, in, in, I believe he was telling us, there are five days of encounter that he's bringing his church to. Five tests, five words that each church was going to have to face during the coming uh, months that would determine what level and in what style they would pursue and follow the Lord. We said that there would be denominational struggles and like we're seeing in the, uh, the Methodist church, our brothers and sisters in the Methodist church, we need to pray for them. They've come to the conclusion, of course it's pending a vote in May, they've come to a conclusion that they can no longer walk as one denomination. So deep is the division and pending a vote in May, they're going to split into at least two groups at least that's the way it appears right now. Um, these encounters are serious things. These issues are serious words. And um, I believe the Lord gave us the days of encounter because number one, he was giving us a preview and giving us a sense to get ready and move out and be prepared. And I also believe that God said he was beginning to work with guarded hearts. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by guarded hearts. A guarded heart can be good or bad. Uh, another way of talking about a guarded heart is to call it a cautious heart. Now, you can have a cautious heart and that can be a good thing, meaning you're not easily swayed uh, or, or brought into new things. There's a lot of things uh, under the guise of prophecy and new revelation that's being presented to the church today that has very little foundation in the New Testament. The connection is very, very tenuous. And some people are just cautious. They say, I just don't want to go there until I'm convinced this is a move of God. That's a good thing. But a guarded heart can also be a bad thing. I've known people with that kind of guarded heart, but I've also known people, pastors, church leaders with another kind of guarded heart that was standing against anything new or anything that challenged them or anything that stretched them. And I felt on those days of encounter, and I feel it more strongly now than I did then, that God has honored guarded hearts. God has, has nodded to guarded hearts, but now God is calling guarded hearts to stretch into what he is clearly making known to them. Uh, what was once a good character trait can easily become a resistance to the Holy Spirit. You see, not only can we become hardened against a move of God, but we can become hardened toward a move of God as well. And so we've got to keep our, our hearts uh, open. Um, the question that 
these encounter messages brought to bear was this. How do I treat an encounter with God? I remember in 1962, I was just a little fella. It was the 100th anniversary of the um, Civil War. My dad took me to every major battlefield we could get to because I was intrigued by the, the Civil War. You know, it was... Uh, that was a that was the day of cowboys and Indians and the Civil War and World War II. It was just a different era of things that kids played, you know. And I was amazed with the Civil War. I had a pretty good knowledge of it to be only seven years old. And my dad took me to different battlefields. And when we got to Manassas Junction, um, I got confused because it was called Bull Run and it was called Manassas. And I, I, my seven-year-old mind, I got confused. I said, Daddy, is this Bull Run? He said, yes, this is Bull Run, two great battles here. And I read something else. I said, Daddy, is this Manassas? He says, yes, Manassas, two great battles here. And I said, Daddy, was it Manassas or was it Bull Run? And he looked at me and said, yes. And I, I said, why does it go by two names? And I found out that the, the Northern army had a tendency, it didn't happen all, every battle, certainly not, but there are a lot of Civil War battles that go by two names. The Northern army named it on the basis of some creek or river or body of water because when they looked at their maps, that was always there. Uh, Bull Run Creek was on every map. But the Confederates knew it as the railroad junction at Manassas. It was Manassas Junction. And in fact, if you go there, you talk about the battle at so-and-so's barn and the battle at so-and-so Creek. All of that depends on your perspective. If you were a Union soldier, you looked at the topography and named it this. If you were a Confederate soldier, you looked at the topography and say, who built that barn? Where's that town? Where's that corral of horses? Because one, one uh, army understood the land on a map. The other understood it from living there. They understood it from living there. Have you ever been with somebody that when you ask directions, they say, well, I'll go down here. Oh, it's five or six miles. It's where Roy Shirk's barn used to be. Used to be. It's not there anymore. No, but you remember where it used to be. No, I don't remember. That was the explanation. And loved ones, can I tell you something? I think whenever God brings us to places of encounters, sometimes one person calls it by this. Sometimes another person calls it by that because of their perspective. And I want to tell you the thing that we have to be careful of. I'm not sure if I'm making this clear. This was the best illustration that I could come up with. We need to be sure that we're not calling that which is profane holy. And we must be sure that we're not calling that which is holy profane. The Lord speaks against profanity and profanity is to speak of that which is holy as though it were common. Um, it's not just a nasty word. It can be. In fact, profanity technically is the misuse of the Lord's name or the misuse of an oath. And, and Esau was considered a profane person, not because he had a potty mouth. Esau was considered a profane person for this reason. Now hear me, loved ones. Because he was surrounded with the same blessings and presence of God that his brother Jacob was surrounded with. 
Jacob was as crooked as a corkscrew, but Jacob's redeeming quality is he understood what was of God, and Esau never did. Esau took what was holy and made it profane. And I believe what we're about to see in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it may mean that we go back and look at things that have happened through the years. We may be finding ourselves coming to the place where things that we have spoken ill of, things that we have spoken disparagingly of, or people or events or attitudes that we have cursed, we may find that we have been extremely profane because we've not known what God was doing. And we're calling, we, we recognize the event, but to one it's a bull run, to another it's a Manassas. It, it could very well be that we have lacked the sensitivity and the sensibility and the, 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 the calmness of heart to let the Holy Spirit show us what we're seeing and what we're going through. And I'm, I'm fearful that so many children of God have spent their lives being drawn to encounters by the Lord, but they've never understood what God was doing. That's why the Lord, whenever he showed uh, things to Jeremiah and he did it to Zechariah and, uh, well, he did Ezekiel, but there's one more prophet I'm trying to remember, I can't remember. But he would show him something and the Lord would say, what do you see, Jeremiah? What do you see? And before the Lord would explain anything about the prophetic vision, he wanted to be sure that, that Jeremiah was seeing what God was showing and that's why you see hear God saying, you have seen well. You have seen well. God wasn't saying you've got 20-20 vision. God was saying, Jeremiah, you're seeing and you understand what this is. Now let me explain to you what it is. A am I making any sense at all? I, I know some of you wanted to say no, but thank you. Thank you for your, for your kindness. Just bear with me here for a minute. Um, God in 2020... Uh, somebody has said prophetically that 2020 was the year of perfect vision. I don't know if that's true or not, or, or if it was just a clever play on words. Maybe it is true. I don't know. But I do tell you what I believe God is doing. He's giving us clearer vision. He's giving us revelation and he's giving us a sense of understanding what he's doing. Somebody put it this way that I think is really true. God is taking us into 2020 with our eyes wide open. I said to you, uh, in this uh, preparatory message on, on the, was it last week or the, or the 29th? I can't remember. Um, but I was saying that 2020, God was, was working to establish two things in our heart. To find, help us find a place of hiding in him and a place of consecrating ourselves to him. It goes back to what I said at the encounter messages. This is in your notes, I think. I said that God is moving us to a place in our lives that he's calling Goshen. It was a place of hiding in him. There is so much that is about to happen around us. And I want to say this. Um, I believe that even though we are going to have a year of blessing and, uh, and, and clear focus, I, I'm afraid that the, the venom and the anger surrounding our politics will make this election year one of the most volatile and vicious that we have ever seen in our lives. 
Um, I, I, I mentioned a little bit about this last week. I'm not saying it's this group's fault or that group's fault. I'm just saying the tension is going to be high. And unless the Holy Spirit, uh, through the influence of the church, can calm that, can ratchet that down, unless our politicians can begin to, to, to take a higher road instead of a lower road, we're going to be in a very volatile society uh, up to the election and after the election, whoever is elected. Now, I, I want you to understand that God is doing everything without violating our free moral agency to bring us to the place of Goshen so that we are not victimized by what's around us. And he's also bringing us to the place of Gilgal, which was a place of consecrating ourselves to him before we go into this spiritual battle and determine the purposes of God over our nation and over this, this world. Um, I will say this, less and less will we be able to compartmentalize Christianity. There is a brooding spirit, a brooding work, not brooding as in I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. He is, just as he was hovering over the face of the waters, waiting to create and bring forth life out of chaos, I believe that is the condition of the church in America today. I believe the Holy Spirit is brooding over us to see our reaction, to see what level of obedience that we walk in. Um, he is... He is um, He's doing a work that few of us understand because the only way we can understand this is number one, by the revelation of the Lord. And usually the revelation of the Lord comes as we stay in his presence. So we've got to learn to stay in his presence. Now, as we look at, we're just going to review these five encounter words quickly. And then I want to close with what God has been laying on my heart. Um, when we went over the encounters, we gave you, we gave you five words. We gave you the scripture portion, told the story, gave the meaning of it and the burden of the Lord. I want to review that. And what I want to do today, um, hear me, loved ones, what I want to do today is remind us of what God spoke to us last year. These encounters are coming. Every denomination, I felt like it was a word to churches and denominations, but it's also a word to people because this church is what it is not because it's an Assemblies of God congregation. This church is what it is because of you and of your response and the way we've tried to pursue the Lord. So God doesn't speak to a denomination without speaking also to the members of that denomination. God doesn't speak to a church without speaking to the parts of that church, leadership, um, membership, um, those that are just part of a crowd. God speaks to us on every level. We talk number one, the first word was the word filling. You, you, you don't need to follow me in your notes yet. Um, and and the, that was from Acts 2. And the takeaway from the word, the filling, is that we would become more and more dependent on the work of the Spirit. It's not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. The second word was cleansing. That's from Acts 5. And that God was calling us to a deep and hard repentance. I didn't understand fully what deep and hard repentance meant when he gave me that word. But it seems that over the last nine or ten months, God has been speaking to me about deep and hard repentance. Number three, the third word was the word correction. It's from Acts 8. It had to do with cleansing. Acts 10 talk about, talked about the embracing 
the embracing of the lost. Number five was, the final word was the distinction, Acts 12, that God will show that there is a distinction between those he favors and those that are walking in rebellion. Now I wanna say this, we have to be careful. We must not try to make the distinction. We got to be careful. We don't say, well, no wonder that happened to you. You don't love God. Judge him, God. Get a, yep, that's what I figured was going to happen if somebody didn't love God. We are not in a position, we do not have the wisdom to discern and understand what's going on in someone else's life. Because every time you say, yeah, that must be the judgment of God upon them, you'll be flustered in two weeks when God blesses them. And whenever you say, well, I'm blessed because God's happy with me, you'll be wondering in three months, is God not happy with me anymore because I'm struggling? We must not enter, let it enter our hearts, but the Lord will begin to show us more and more clearly that he makes a distinction between those who serve him and those who not. Now, when we talk about God stirring the hearts of the church, we, we have a tendency to jump on certain bandwagons and say that's what we need. Now, loved ones, please listen to what I say, not what it may sound like I'm saying. Um, um, one of the things that bandwagons that we need tend to jump on is what we need is more, more miracles. And loved ones, please believe me, there is a solid case that can be made that miracles open the hearts of people and open the eyes of people. And Jesus had said, if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. I understand the power of miracles and we dare not minimize the supernatural activity of God as being used to draw people to himself. I would never minimize that, but neither should we put all of our eggs in that basket so as to think that miracles are all that we need. There are also those, besides those that turn to God because of a miracle, there are also those who allow their hearts to be hardened because of miracles. God spoke, you know, in an audible voice. I hear people on TV all the time. Well, if God really wanted to speak, just let him speak in an audible voice. Well, he did that a couple of times. And the result is that some people were amazed and some people were hardened. You know, some said it thundered. God could stand here over Columbia and speak a message of love and grace. Some people's hearts would be melted by it. And some, just as in the Bible, would say, oh, that was just thunder. That was just thunder. So we've got to understand, greater miracles might be part of the solution in a place, but it's not the solution in the whole world. Um, we had a, a, a I, I grew up with the mindset that when anything was wrong, we always said this, what we need is a revival. What we need is a revival. First church I pastored, we were going through such tough times and the, the board made a statement, well, pastor, what we need is a revival. And I said, no, what we need is money, a lot of money. We are, we can't pay our bills. We can't pay our salaries. I said, I would welcome a revival, but I would welcome a lot of money. And they thought that was so carnal. Some of them laughed and said, well, maybe you're right. But loved ones, uh, the, 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 the cry of the seventies and eighties is what we need is a revival. 
And we do need a revival. We need an, a, a great awakening in our nation. But you've got to understand, it's never one ingredient that makes a cake. It's all of the ingredients, you know. Um, and we, we do need miracles and we do need a revival. But when God sends a revival, how you respond to it may make all the difference in the world as to whether the revival brings to pass the fruit it ought to or not. I can tell you the story of a denomination and, and I can tell you that they were greatly, they were greatly benefited by the charismatic renewal of the 60s and 70s. They grew to the point that by the mid 80s they were the fastest growing denomination in America. They took their stance that God is with us. We have the great televangelists. We have the greatest growth. We're the fastest growing denomination in America. And in my opinion, I don't mean this in a judgmental sense, but in my opinion, because we did not understand what God was doing in the assemblies of God. We saw our televangelists fall. We saw our great growth become decline. And we, we saw our great programs for the 90s, the decade of harvest, fall by the wayside. I don't mean that was because of sin. I don't mean, I mean, well, some of it obviously was. I don't mean that the denomination suffered because we were in sin as a denomination. I'm saying that it's not only important to have the touch of God upon you, it's important to know how to steward the touch of God. And we're still trying to get our bearings back. Um, uh, in the assemblies of God from where we were to where we are right now. And I, I know that could be misconstrued and misunderstood, but I want you to know what we need at least as an ingredient is deep and hard repentance. I'm not talking about an inquisition. I'm not saying that we ought to become hard line and say, if there's anything in your past that has ever happened, you need to be disqualified. We do not need an inquisition. We do not need foolish transparency. The last thing we need is for everybody in the church of Jesus Christ to reveal every secret that they have put under the blood for a generation. We don't need that kind of foolish transparency. But what we do need is that in our hearts between us and God, we need to get resolution for our sin, not absolution. We already are forgiven, but you and I, I'm not, I don't mean Justin needs to stand up and say, folks, there's something that happened 20 years ago. I need to tell you about that's not what I'm talking about, but Justin needs to be able to say, as I need to be able to say, as you need to be able to say, Lord, I failed you. I know it's under the blood. I know it's forgiven, but I feel the residue of that. I don't know that I ever really dealt with that. So see the prayer I prayed a few years ago has been the most life-changing prayer. I think I've ever prayed. Well, there is maybe the third most life-changing prayer. The first one was Jesus saved me. That, that really changed things. The second one was, Lord, help me to be more like Jesus. That's a prayer, once you pray it, he'll never not answer it. He'll make you mad. He'll ruin your day. He'll shake you until your eye teeth fall out, but he's going to answer that prayer. He's going to make you more like Jesus. But I tell you, the third most influential prayer I think I've ever prayed is, Lord, I want you to deal with me on this side of eternity. 
about the deep things in my heart instead of the other side. I don't want to get to the judgment seat of Christ and have this stuff not dealt with. Now, I'm sure when I get there, there will be, will be things that are not dealt with. But since I prayed that prayer, it was like that was the prayer God had been waiting for me to pray all my life. And he began to deal with stuff. He began to deal with unforgiveness. He began to deal with past sin. He never made me feel that I was unforgiven. But loved ones, if we're not careful, all we want is prosecutorial amnesty. All we want is, okay, I can't go to hell over this. But we don't understand the depth of what we've done. It's like somebody whose apology is sorry. Or I'm sorry you feel that way. Okay, I'm just, what do you want me to do? You know, you can tell when somebody is apologizing to end an argument. And when somebody is apologizing because they don't want a divorce. And you can tell when somebody is apologizing because there's something profoundly broken in the relationship. And if it's not dealt with, it could happen again. That's what God began to take me into. And that's what I want to talk to you about a little bit later. Word number one was the filling. Loved ones, please understand these five things are what God is going to begin to do in our midst. He's going to uh, impress upon us the importance of the filling. All missionary activity was put on hold until the church received the promise of the Father, the infilling Holy Spirit. Only by His enabling power could God's program possibly succeed. Even the Great Commission yields its demands to the church's pursuit of supernatural enablement. A church, a denomination, a family, every man, woman, boy, and girl has got to come to the place where we seek afresh and anew the fullness of the Holy Spirit on every level. God's about to pour out his spirit in a fresh way to those who understand their need. He will fill every hungry heart, but will not contaminate his anointing by mixing oils. God desires us to wait upon him in humility and willingness to let him come <coughs> to us in a form that we may not expect. We must see that victory is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Word number two is cleansing. The first one was from Acts 2. This is from Acts 5. As the church came under the supernatural grace of giving, the atmosphere was blessing by thre and threatened by the impurity of Ananias and Sapphira. Such hypocrisy was not uncommon. The sons of Eli corrupted the gifts of the congregation. Even in the presence of Jesus, Judas was allowed to get away with pilfering the funds. But now God would deal with, his, with the sins of his church powerfully and intentionally. Whenever you read through the Old Testament, you see that revival came in its strength when, when four levels of leadership, or four levels of life, the kings, the prophets, the priests, and the people, when those four elements lined up to seek the Lord, there was almost unrestrained revival. But there were partial revivals, there were aborted revivals, uh, because there might be kings that were wicked, but people that were holy. There might be prophets that were wicked, but priests that were holy. But God is after the cleansing of every dynamic of his church. And the church will find that she's under, uh, unable to function under God's new updated operating system until sin is dealt with. 
I want to say that one more time. The church will increasingly find herself (coughs) unable to function under the new operating system until sin is dealt with. Full surrender, true holiness is the next focal point of God's kingdom. The burden of the Lord. We must understand that judgment must take place first in God's house. We must embrace the blessing of chastisement, embrace the fellowship of his sufferings. We must realize it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Word number three was correction from Acts 8. An entire region once thought unreachable was converted by the preaching of the gospel and the demonstrations of Holy Spirit power. One of the converts named Simon would make the mistake of thinking the gifts of the Holy Spirit could be bought and controlled. The future of the move of God in Samaria was at risk. God again moved powerfully through Peter and such carnal thinking was manifested by Simon Uh, received an eternal warning. God would not allow his church to be manipulated by the flesh. There's coming a cleansing of ministries that will be so thorough as to strike terror in the hearts of manipulators and charlatans. The church will grow up at last. They will not be swayed by what we see, but will truly be led by the Lord into a true ministry of the spirit. The prophetic community in particular will find itself in the middle of a major realignment and shaking. Loved ones, prophecy will be vindicated by the Lord to the degree that it is connected to Scripture, not the latest trends. We've got to learn to not, as a church, to not take the name of the Lord in vain. Now, we may never say the Lord's name in vain, but we use His name in vain. The Lord said this. The Lord showed me this. The Lord is doing this. We need to be careful of that. Word number four was embracing. Few of us can understand how radically the world of Simon Peter and the Jerusalem church was racked by the conversion of Cornelius and his household. Gentiles were not part of the commonwealth of Israel till now. Loved ones, let me tell you two things God has showed me in recent weeks. When he talks about the harvest, about people coming home. And how excited we are about that. But the first thing he showed me is that that's not as easy as we might think. Because when we think of people coming home, we think they're coming home to admit to us their mistakes. We think they're coming home to admit to us that they were wrong and we were right. When you study the prodigal son, listen to me loved ones, not everybody has the heart of the father. Most of us are elder brothers. I want you to come back to church. I want you to come to fellowship in the Lord. And as soon as you can line up with my views on everything, I'll welcome you back. I, I, I found out that when we pray for our family members that have been black sheep of the family, or we pray for them that have been a problem rather than a blessing, what I found is that when they start coming back, the probability is that we have to reach out and embrace them long before we think they've made restitution. And that's not easy. I'm looking here. I could be wrong. I think this must be a message for second service. Uh, Can I tell you something? One of the most phenomenal, one of the most phenomenal conversion stories in American history is the conversion of Nathan Bedford Forrest, a Confederate general during the Civil War. Nathan Bedford Forrest was not only a slave owner, he was a slave trader. He was one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan. And he, 
his story uh, is amazing on so many levels, but I know of no man more dominated by violence and hatred than Nathan Bedford Forrest. Nathan Bedford Forrest married a pastor's daughter. Um, Nathan Bedford Forrest was a gambler and a slave trader. And when he asked his wife to be father for her hand, he said, he said, Nathan or Bedford, he was called, he said, Bedford, I cannot allow you to marry my daughter because you are a worldling. You are a, you are a wicked man. And my daughter is not like that. She's a Christian. And Nathan Bedford Forrest said, that's exactly why I want to marry her. And, and they ended up, they did get married and his wife prayed for his conversion. One of his adjutant generals during the war talked to him and said, you know the gospel, you know what's right. Can I not tell you we are liable to die any day? Can I not convince you to pray and ask the Lord to become the savior of your heart? And he said, I believe you are right. He says, but there is such hatred in my heart my only goal in living is number one, get back to my family. And number two, kill as many Yankees as I can in the process. He said, I do not have a heart that's ready for God. Well, after the war, several years after the war, that same adjutant saw him in a bank in Memphis. And he said, uh, General, I asked you years ago at the Battle of Shiloh, would you be willing to give your heart to the Lord? He says, the war is over. Surely you've had time to think through your decision. Will you give your heart to Jesus now? And at a teller's table in a bank in Memphis, Nathan Bedford Forrest knelt, gave his heart to the Lord, and for the last two years of his life lived a devout, intense life of devotion to the Lord, renouncing the clan, renouncing racism, everything he had stood for, he renounced. And you know what loved ones I found? I've told that story probably six or eight times in different settings. And you know what I found in this culture? No one will rejoice over the salvation of Nathan Bedford Forrest. No one will rejoice over it because his sins are too great in the eyes of black Americans to ever accept him as a brother. His sins are too great in the eyes of white Americans because it would be so politically incorrect to welcome someone like that into the fold. I preached at five or six different times, at five or six different places and the, and the, in recent years, and the result has always been the same. Nothing. No celebration. No thought that, well, God, if he could change Nathan Bedford Forrest, he could change anybody. And loved ones, I'm telling you that we, we say we're ready for the harvest, but we're not ready for the harvest. We're ready for the harvest that looks like us. We're ready for the harvest that is of the same political view as us. We're ready for the harvest that did not, that does not offend our sensibilities. I thought when I got the words of encounter that welcoming the harvest would be the easiest thing. And you know what I found out? It's far more difficult than anything else that God is trying to do is to get our hearts ready to welcome the harvest. I, 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 a friend of mine, uh, uh, yeah, he's a friend of mine, more of an acquaintance. But when the Iranian general was killed, 
Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to make a political statement, but when he was killed, my friend celebrated. He says, well, all of his anti-Christian remarks, he knows better now, doesn't he? Standing before the Lord, he knows better now. And I thought, yeah, I think he does know better. But what happened to us that we rejoice over someone going to hell? What happened to us that we rejoice in someone um, at the expense of their soul learning we were right? No, loved ones, people say, when is the harvest coming? We've got to work through our Nathan Bedford forests. We've got to work through our unforgiveness. We've got to work through our elder brother mentality. This is amazing preaching. I'm just going to go on and wrap it up. Now, what is our response? I, I want to say this. There are two things that I want to say. Uh, it's time to go, but I'll say these just as quickly as I can. There are two things I want to say. Um, number one, we will be amazed at what God's spirit is producing. Uh, and, and as a sub point, maybe you could say three things, but I also want you to understand we are going to be amazed at the hatred that is spewed toward us as Christians. Uh, what we've called persecution has, has been primarily inconvenience and insults. But I believe before this is over, I believe before the kingdom of God is manifest in its fullness, we are going to understand what the church has understood for 2,000 years. We are hated. We are not part of this world. What Jesus said is right. If they hated me, they will hate you. The disciple is not above his master. And quite frankly, loved ones, it remains to be seen if American Christians can handle being hated. It remains to be seen. It is a violation of our civil rights. It is a violation of our constitutional rights. But what do you do when at the end of the day, everything that is said and spewed upon you is because you are hated because of whom you serve? That's a, okay. Test number one is what do you do when the Nathan Bedford forests of life come home? Number two, what do you do when you are hated purely for the fact that you belong to Jesus? And let me wrap it up with this. We need to understand judgment and mercy. Please be with me. I'll finish just as quickly as I can. A, a few months ago, something happened to me on a prayer retreat that rattled me. It really rattled me. What came from that prayer retreat is that God said this to me. My people need to understand judgment and mercy work hand in hand. And this is what the Lord spoke to me on my face in the carpet in a motel room in Rock Hill, South Carolina. He said, my people must understand that, I'm, that they must allow me to judge them thoroughly and then love them thoroughly. I think it was Lauren Sanford that said this. One of the greatest tragedies of today is that the people of God have walked so far away that God cannot treat us as sons and daughters and, dis and discipline us for our good. That's why I said we want prosecutorial immunity. We want legal protection. But God wants to judge us thoroughly. Forgiveness is immediate. It's, judgment is not a matter of forgiveness. 
God wants to judge thoroughly and love thoroughly. And if we don't allow him to do that, he, if we do not heed his personal actions to recall us, hear me, loved ones, his judgment then becomes largely impersonal. And it becomes the reaping of what we have sown. It becomes destruction without the grace of his intervention to spare us. So many of us have learned the hard way, Lauren Sanford says, what grace would have written on our hearts the easy way. Let me explain to you, this is worth your time. As I was praying, I was praying about something totally unrelated and I became overwhelmed with a sense of grief and pain because of an attitude that I had taken nearly three decades before. It was the most hurtful, desolate time of my life. I, I, it was a time I told you about when I didn't even want to live. I wasn't a hypocrite. I wasn't running around in an adulterous affair or anything like that. But I had such hatred and such bitterness and such unhealthy attitudes in my life because of the way I felt I was being treated. It, it, it was a horrible time in my life. And I told you about how God gave me deliverance from that time. But on that day in Rock Hill, I began to, to see the faces. It was like they came before me of people that I knew I had hurt. You say, well, so the Lord was showing you you were wrong. I've known for decades I was wrong with my attitude, but I also believe they were far more wrong than I was. And it's been layers of getting over that. You know, it's like, it's like an onion. You, an onion has layers and every one of them bring you to tears. That's the way forgiveness had been in that situation. But I, but I honestly thought I had purged myself and that everything was okay. I thought I had forgiven uh, all of that stuff. But this wasn't about you did wrong. This is about the result of what you did. I saw people whose lives were ruined because of my unwillingness to forgive. I didn't do it. No, my hands were clean, but my attitude did it. I saw people that dropped out of church. It was their decision, but it was my carnality that probably drove them to it. And I saw these faces and I was overwhelmed. I, I'm, I wasn't trying to be melodramatic, but I grabbed my shirt and I just ripped it open. I said, God, I'm not able to live. I'm not able to bear this blame. And it went on for probably an hour and a half. And I, God began to speak to me. It's, it's too personal to tell you all of it. But God began to speak to me so plainly. And he said, I forgave you at the moment of the offense. But you have thought all of these years that I showed you mercy instead of judgment. Because your attitude was bad enough, you should have been dismissed from ministry. You should have taken a sabbatical. You should have never been allowed to pastor a church with this hatred and this animosity in your heart. You should have never been allowed to do it. You thought I showed you mercy by allowing you to stay in ministry and work through this. He said, but let me tell you what I did. And now this is straight from my journal. 
I, I dealt with you as sternly in judgment as I could without destroying you. And I dealt with you as mercifully as I could have because of, and then he gave me three things that were the cause of his mercy that I can't, it, it would just, it, it's too personal, I can't go into it. He says, all these years you've thought you were above judgment. But he said, he said, Stephen, I want you to know for the months that followed, you were fully engaged in judgment. You were under the judgment of God for months. Even though you were abounding in mercy and grace and love. I said, Lord, I don't understand which, which was I involved in. Was that judgment or mercy? And he said, grace and truth always go together. Mercy and judgment always go together unless someone aborts the process. When someone aborts the process, I have to deal with their sin, but not as my child. It becomes, it becomes as Lauren Sanford said, it becomes impersonal. But he said, this is why I was able to deal with you with full judgment and full mercy. See, that morning he showed me things that were lost because of my, because of my sin. And he showed me the mercy that enabled me to survive that. Do you understand me? He said, you were not above judgment. You were fully engaged. This is why you survived it, he said. You fell before me during the crushing so that during the months of judgment that was extreme, at the same time I showed you mercy that was extreme. He said, my hopes for every one of my children is that mercy will triumph over judgment. And in your case, it did. And in your case, it did. Richard, I mean, James Dobson used to say that dealing with a teenager is very difficult, especially those adolescent years. He said, there's one thing you want to be sure of every time you deal with your child. He says, whenever you deal with your child, will your child still let you touch her? Will your child still let you hug them? Will your child still sit in your lap? Whatever your expression is, a touch, an embrace, a sit in the lap. He said, no matter how hopeless the situation seems, if your child will still allow you to touch them, the bond is there. The bond is there. He said, now they may not the first time, but watch for their return to the touch. And this is what God spoke to me. He said, I've got to raise up people that understand this is not a slot machine that you put coins in. I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry I did that. Forgiven. Move along. Move along. Every sin is a betrayal of the love of God. Every rebellion breaks the heart of God. And what God is after is someone that will fall before him during the judgment. Now, don't get me wrong. Repentance can, can mitigate judgment. God can, 
instead of doing this, God does this because of our repentance. I know this is a hard concept to understand, but God is after people that are looking to understand this. This is not about a score sheet where I got more good than bad. This is not a, whoa, whoa, phew, thank God I got rid of that sin before the rapture occurred, you know. No. His blood cleanses us from all sin. But what, how do we treat the rebellion that drove us to the... When a man commits adultery, it's not enough for him to say, I'll never commit adultery again. He's got to understand why. The, the Bible says, rejoice with the wife of your youth. Let her breasts, or literally the word embrace, let her embrace satisfy you at all times. Everything that you need, let it be found in the embrace you have for your wife. So when you commit adultery, it's not just that you did wrong. Something was broken. So what do you do? How do you get that restored? Loved ones, I... <laughs> He's doing a deep work among his people. It's not a matter superficially of dealing with secret sin. It's not a matter of behaving yourself. It's a matter of you bringing what you are on the inside. Letting him, if necessary, take you through months of judgment. Loved ones, I was so broken in Rock Hill because God showed me what I lost because of that period of rebellion. He showed me what I would never in, enjoy in this life as a product of that rebellion. But he showed me his amazing love and it hinged not on my goodness, it hinged on my falling into his lap. It hinged on me not blaming him. It hinged on me not pursuing hatred. It hinged on me saying, Lord, I'm broken and I'm hopelessly broken. But with you, there is favor. With you, there is goodness. It's what David learned when he had numbered the army of Israel or the, yeah, the army of Israel. And the prophet said, you can have this, this, or this punishment. You choose. David had reached the point where he understood the Lord's mercy is what I need. Not, I'm not trying to get off the hook. I need to be dealt with on the inside. Some of you got to quit running. Some of you got to quit shaking your fist. Some of you got to quit hurting God. You know, if, if I just stay away from church, that'll hurt him. If I can stay away from church, that'll teach him. You say, I've been so dealt with by God. I'm, Pastor, what do I do? You come to him. You come to him. Though he has chastened you severely you come to him you say papa place that restoration can be made you're off the hook 
You're not going to die for your sin. Jesus has already done that. The question in these coming days, are you willing to let the same hand that chastised you embrace you? Would you stand, please? Lord, we want to come home. We want our relationship with you to be more than a fire insurance policy. We want it to be more than a get out of jail free card. We want the kind of relationship described in Hebrews 12 where because we are your children, you chasten us. You drive from us everything that is unlike you and unlike your kingdom. It's what Job was trying to say way back at the beginning when he said, even if he slays me, I will trust him. Even if he slays me, I will trust him. I wonder how many here you just say, Pastor, I don't want to air my laundry. I don't, I, I, I'm a Christian and I love the Lord. But Pastor, I, I've got to get through this. I've got to get through this cycle of sin. I've got to get through this, this lighthearted attitude toward holy things that Esau had. I don't want to be profane. I don't want to be profane. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Help me to come back to the hand that chastened me so that it may heal me. In Jesus' name. Breathe on us, Holy Spirit. Breathe on us, Holy Spirit. Breathe on us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Breathe on us, Holy Spirit. Loved ones, this will be our dismissal today. It's, I say dismissal, it's almost time for the other service to start. Let me, let me explain it this way. When we were raising our children, one of the thoughts, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, one of the thoughts was never spank your child with your hand. Always use something else. And the thought was, a child doesn't need to know that, they need to know that a parent would never strike them. I felt like it was a different truth that needed to be revealed. It was the one I was raised with. I wanted my children to know what I understood growing up. The same hand that lovingly cares for me will chasten me when I need chastening. And, and I, you know what I believe? I believe we've, we've, a lot of us have grown up with the idea that any kind of chastening is the devil. Any kind of chastening is the government. Any kind of chastening is the Republicans. Any kind of chastening is the Democrats or the Lutherans or whoever. But I tell you what Hebrews tells us, the hand that watches over us is the hand that will whack our fannies. 
when we walk wrongly. This is the altar call. This is the end right here. I'll, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be going to the green room in 60 seconds to regroup. If there are things that you've carried, you may have trouble articulating them, but you understand I've treated it as an offense that I just need to get scraped away. But there's something in me I've got to, I've got to bring to the Lord and let him deal with me on that deep level. If that's where you are today, I just want you to come. I just want you to come stay in his presence. If, if there's someone here that you'd say, I, I've never given my heart to Jesus, please see me or Pastor Justin before you leave. We'd love to pray with you. Okay? Don't leave without Jesus as your Savior. Um, Pastor Glenn, as he begins to worship, the altars are open. It's just a time for you to settle this. I called it my carpet time in Rock Hill. Maybe you need some carpet time in Columbia today. Lord, I want to come clean. Or at the very least, Lord, I want to begin the process that pastor's talking about. Would you come? I love you so much. God bless you.